Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Excellent. And speaking of projects that are going really well, what is the project that we're currently talking about? Uh, we are talking about censoring. Well, the, oh, I specifically meant, uh, what's this project? I, I hear that you and frequent guest of the show uh, and certified genius Labor Kyle have started a new project. Uh, that's right. We make a show called Profane Illuminations for Zero Books, which is a series of essays and conversations around key ideas and themes uh, of the, 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 uh, the situation of the present. Uh, so we did an episode on hope, and we have just done an episode on the idea of utopia, both of which are up on the Zero Books YouTube channel, which you should all go and watch. I know, I know in my heart of hearts that if there's anything our listeners enjoy... It's both being illuminated and the profane. And the profane, yeah. <laughs> that's what everyone likes. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's the draw. That's the part that gets you in. But I highly recommend checking it out. Um, I've seen these episodes. They are fantastic. The editing is great. The content is great. The discussions are great. Must be seen. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you wish that we did this to more than just horror movies, I highly recommend checking out the rest of John and Labor Kyle's work. Thank you so much. And yeah, we will um we'll 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 maybe put a put a link to the latest one in the show notes if you if you fancy checking it out. But we are not we're not here to just <laughs> we are not here to how, just cut this. How dare you how <laughs> dare you censor my appreciation of the work that you two do. Yeah. Uh if this episode is ever gonna be released, all of this will have to be cut. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, there, well, there's the, well, there's another British censorship bureau striking down the, the creative freedom of horror artists everywhere. Uh, once again, podcasters are truly the most oppressed. <laughs> <laughs> um, hello, everybody. It's your horror vanguard for the week. Uh, I am John, joined, as always, by my good friend Ash. How are you doing? Um, I'm, I'm doing, doing pretty good. Uh, just, just working, working at the old censorship board, making sure no one ever sees anything in a movie ever again. Yep. Uh, we're here to just destroy art. Uh, that's, that's what it's all about. Um, we are talking today about, um, honestly, I think a really exciting, uh, horror, horror film debut from, uh, Prano Bailey Bond, uh, last year's sensor uh it is it's out now on various streaming platforms but i suspect this might might be one of those ones which has kind of slipped people's notice um and one of the kind of fun things about our show is not only do we get to kind of find uh you know weird stuff and cult cinema that people probably might not have heard of but we get to bring attention to stuff that we think people should actually see um, but as usual, as usual, Ash, would you mind uh, talking about censor, talking about talking about, um, you know, a great British horror movie film debut? What's the movie about? In order to talk about censor, we need to talk about capitalist cinema as a hyperstition. A hyperstition functions as a magic sigil or a code injection attack that, once melded into our shared psychic space, begins to rewrite our understanding of human interactions to the point of total collapse. This creates a positive feedback loop that melts down culture. It's a gray goo apocalypse generating mental Funko Pops where once there were human ideas. The cinematic, the real, the hyper-real all collapse into a swirling eddy. Culture re-emerges from this vortex as a non-fungible token unknowable, unsustainable, and built only for rapid profits and immediate collapse. There's a commons in your heart, and it's being enclosed by fandom. The only way out of enclosure is sorcery. Time sorcery. A detournement reverse engineering of the Fordian flow of time. Tempest Fugate is often frailly translated as time flies. But this is, in and of itself, an ideological expression. Fugit translates more literally as fleas, and oh dear listener, does time flee from us, and it flees from our magics. 
We banish time in the creation of a luxury space, not of algorithmic thought, but of days lost in the woods. Fluidity replaces ticking, and for the first time we can feel what it's like to let go. Close your eyes for a moment. There is a remote in your hand. Can you feel it? Rub your thumb across the buttons. Feel their weight, their resistance, their enormity. Press the one that calls to you. This is not an episode of a horror movie criticism podcast. It is a functioning time machine. Skip to random sections, reverse at arbitrary points, speed to the end. This is your time and your time alone. Reconstruct meaning with us as we dissolve into deep time and discuss Prano Bailey Bond's censor. Ooh, yes. <laughs> has, has somebody been reading the collected writing of the CCRU lately? <laughs> no, John. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, let us let 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 us indeed uh, enter enter the the magical time image space that is <laughs> that is that is both the podcast and the film. Uh, and begin as we always do with the formalism zone. Let's do it. This is a, such a beautiful movie for discussing formalism in cinema, too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. This. Uh, uh, obviously, obviously, w- when we're talking about film, we tend to kind of mostly focus on writers and directors, but the formal qualities of a film are necessarily dictated by often teams of dozens, hundreds of people working very closely across an incredibly complex range of subjective and artistic kind of pursuits. And the 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 thing that I really love about this movie is not only is like the production design just 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 like picture perfect. It also sounds amazing as well. <laughs> yeah, okay so we we should talk about this. We we, we should talk about the, the kind of Spatial, temporal, audio relationships that the film creates for us. How would you want to kick off our little, our little uh, formalist VHS store? Please save me from me and continue this discussion. <laughs> the formalism zone. Yeah, uh, man with a movie camera. Sorry, that's what I wanted to start with. Man with a mo- movie camera uh, by Ziga Vertov. Uh, talks about the camera as an eye mm-hmm. um and the eye is supposed to open onto the world but this is this is maybe like the oldest debate it's i mean the 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 soviet filmmakers were really the first to kind of formalize the study of to 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 approach cinema formally right uh and the the whole question is what does the camera show you does the camera show you a world and if so horror depends upon what isn't seen and and like in this in this film there's so much of where you're following a person from behind you don't mm-hmm. get to you don't get to see faces a great deal you also don't get to see a lot of what um the characters are watching in their day jobs because a lot of it is the things that they're censoring away so i think the way the camera here is a means of obscuring as well as revealing something is super important. And I mean, like I, I completely agree. And I think this is even more important given the nature of this film, right? To, to be so selective with the, the kind of the, the mise-en-scene, the visual information that we're working with in a film about film censorship, specifically in the media that maybe second to pornography is, is the number one target of these kind of things. It's it's just so clever to have such a restricted visual space to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the way in which the way in which this is edited together, um, but the thing that I think is really really great here is the sound design because the sound mm-hmm. design is is often a lot of it is not even non diegetic but like hyper diegetic. It's like it's cutting through scenes which are stitched together anyway. It's sort of like the sound is what sutures the world of the the this film together, right? The camera doesn't doesn't show you everything, but you manage mm-hmm. to, you manage to hear three-dimensionally because the sound design uh, is is very spatially configured so that there is like there's a sense of like 
sounds coming from different directions, sounds turning into other sounds through movement. Um, and I read a review of the film that pointed out that the sound designer, uh, uh, Tim Harrison, used the uh, 1970s animated film Watership Down as kind of spatial inspiration for where sounds were coming from. Because a lot of sounds that come from underground have echoes to them. You can't quite pinpoint where something is happening. Mm-hmm. And I think we don't talk enough about the fact that like sound is is incredibly gothic, right? Uh, you go back to something like Carwin the Biloquist, uh, this idea of like projecting a voice or hearing something mysterious but not seeing anything. This is like kind of foundational, um, and it's so cool to have a have a movie that embraces it so explicitly. Oh, absolutely, one hundred percent, and I think that. What makes the sound design, I think for me, so interesting in this film is this is this is a very technical piece of cinematic work, right? It's it's one of those movies that's about the art of filmmaking and film history and cinematography at, at its core, right? What is this thing that we're doing when we point a camera at something and make a movie? And I think the audio dimension of that is so underexplored. Mm. You know, like like one of one of the classic kind of lessons of composing any kind of c- cinema or videography is that you you could have really terrible visual quality, but as long as people can hear what's going on, you you can skate by. But if you flip that and you have a movie that's inaudible, but a visual treat, you're going to lose people a lot quicker. And I think despite that, it's it's kind of an underrespected aspect of cinema. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that brings us on to like the next aspect which we should talk about, which is the thing that you told me you immediately said you you found the most interesting, which is VHS, 35 millimeter. Let's talk about film. Yeah, yeah, we have we, so we have to talk about the film that film is filmed on, right? Like mm-hmm. like we're in we're 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 stuck in this digital nothing land where everything is ephemeral and nothing has weight and it all comes and goes. But the reason we call it film is because they used to have to put it on a film. <laughs> and the fact that uh, Crano Bailey Bond used 8mm VHS and 35 in the filming of this is just, it's just fucking brilliant. You know, to, to use the kind of cinevisual technologies available in the period that this movie was being made. You know, like, like, and, and like, like, especially when we get to talking about video nasties, right? The whole video nasty thing only exists because VHS happened. Yeah. And VHS revolutionized how, how cinema was distributed and created. And to, and to refresh these dying technologies, they don't make VCRs anymore. You know, like, there are certain film stocks that you can shoot, but you can never develop, right? Because the chemical formulations and processes have been lost. You know, there there are audio methods that can't be captured anymore. Like there's so much like phantom technology. There's so much abandonware in cinema. And when these movies just kind of like embrace that and go back and revisit it, it's just so it's it's like this refreshing. It's, it moves against the teleology because the teleology is, OK, we got 4K. Next is 8K, then 16K. And it's the, always have this endless progression to infinite digital fidelity but to go back and to look at these technologies and and play with the things that we've lost in our progress, it, it just it speaks to a lot of the themes that go on in Sensor. And I think the other thing that I really love about this film is the way that it underscores the kind of tactility of film, right? The the mm-hmm. the the fact that like um, like white noise on a VHS had a kind of warmth to it, like mm-hmm. the, because. Because there wasn't this weightless hyper fidelity of the image, you kind of had to lean in, and it was like you know you could you could like almost put your hand on the screen and you would fall through, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, in, in a way, there are like echoes of something like Videodrome here, right? This idea that this this technology is not just it's not just something that you in in a way uh, it, it's it's a it's a kind of literalization of something we say on the show all the time, right? Something that goes back to the very beginning of the show. Horror wants to do things to your body, right? This film, this film doesn't just want to be something that film itself isn't just something that you're supposed to watch. Film wants to get inside your head, um, and I think the reason so many people found like the video nasties or like horror on VHS such a, a kind of compelling thing was 
precisely because of its lack of fidelity, because it it was uh, it didn't seem hyper real, but it could become capital R, you know, Lacanian real. Yeah. And that, that I think is incredibly important too, right? The physicality of these, of these pre-digital formats, right? Because, it, you know, there's a physicality to the digital that I think gets ignored. You know, like, like there are hard drives, there's physical storage, but even there's something even ephemeral about those. You can snap your fingers and delete whatever's on there and replace it. But I think you know, having to handle a VHS tape, you know, seeing the physical tape in there, like like having it jam in the VCR, there, there, there's, a, there's a bodily experience to that. There, there, there's something lived and organic inside of film-based cinema. And I think that that compels us to be a little bit closer to it. You know, like if, if you, you, you had like you, you couldn't just sit in the comfort of your home and, and Google around trying to find, you know, digital copies of a movie you had to you had to scour the earth you had you had to physically go connect with other people you had to touch grass if you <laughs> if you wanted to find these forbidden bits of cinema and in in a way like we we've kind of we've lost the the physicality of the media we've lost the physical contact the touch that was necessary i mean like e- even though there are things like digital storage how so much of film specifically has become this kind of ghost, which is like it's kept in server farms or in data centers or it's kept behind paywalls or it's kept upon uh, exclusive monopolized streaming services uh, where you have essentially rented something that you really loved for forever now and it can be taken away without a moment's notice. Um, and I think it's it's super interesting to explore the ways in which yeah, film is this bodily experience, right? It isn't this kind of ephemeral series of like phantasmagoria floating past as weightless images. Film is designed to to be horror has a kind of affective intensity to it. Oh, a- absolutely, right? And and the lower fidelity quality I think is really important here. This this is a point that's been expressed by so many people, but that like there's a totemic power to to the VHS tape, and and that extends to the absence of fidelity, right? Because if something if something truly grotesque were to be filmed, it wouldn't be filmed by a team of hundreds in a studio. You know, it w- it wouldn't have the fidelity. It wouldn't have that kind of quality to it. You know, when when the real horrors of our world are captured on on film, you know, they're they're kind of hastily composed in the moment. Uh, you know, by, by by rushed individuals and confused circumstances, without respect to like lighting and angle and and how many takes you can get, and so a lot of the movies that kind of fell under the the purview of like censorship during the video nasties, they had that raw quality to them. You know, even even if the setup was outlandish, right? Demons or, or from, you know, vengeance from beyond the grave, like there's something about the shaky quality and the questionable nature of the final product that makes it more real as we were saying earlier yeah absolutely and i think it's um it's uh it's probably worth then kind of talking about the history here then right mm-hmm. oh yeah because we're we're talking about uh a very specific time in british film history the emergence of the VHS uh, to the domestic market. And there might be people listening who are not super familiar with the actual real world history here. So maybe we can kind of like dig into what are we, what are we talking about when we talk about things like the, 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 the quote unquote video nasties of the uh, late of like 79 to like 80 to the mid eighties. What's, what's this? Let's let us, let's do some historicizing. <laughs> let's always historicize. Right, we're going to add some materiality to this materiality, <laughs> but I think this is an important thing to discuss because this movie, thematically, conceptually, and on every level, is about censorship. It's about redacting and editing and, and cultivating an ideologically infused topography of, of life itself, and it's really it's worth highlighting <laughs> the moment 
that this film this film happens in right so this is the 80s in the uk when vhs is is popping off and uh you could you vid, little video rental stores could be found in towns across the country and like you know maybe this will surprise some of our american listeners but there were like frequent police raids on video rental stores especially in like the greater manchester area and they would like just take films arbitrarily um there there's like an infamous case of a police raid on a manchester video rental store that took a bunch of dolly parton movies because they thought they were porn yeah yeah the best little whole house in texas <laughs> yep it's, and so so yeah yeah set, set, set the stage for us you know lead us into the world of of how the uk treats vhs okay so uh a little a little bit of kind of context which is that uh home home video kind of emerges in the 70s right there's no um legislation that specifically regulated video content apart from a uh a, a piece of law from the 1950s called the obscene publications act which was later amended to cover like essentially pornography in the 70s uh and what this meant was if there was kind of like a perceived breach breach of the obscene publications act uh which was open to wild inter- interpretation because it was written in the 50s then that material could be seized by the police um yes infamously greater manchester police which was headed by uh cyril james anderton who was devoutly christian and deeply homophobic um, and loads of other uh, constabularies across the UK used to raid local video shops uh, and take away material. Then you had uh, the story about an infamous figure, Mary Whitehouse. Um, do, do you know this? Do you know the story of what Go Video did? No, no, but I would love to hear it. Uh, no, sorry. It was um, it was Vipco, the video instant picture company, who were the UK distributors of an of a of an infamous movie called The Driller Killer from 1979. Hell yes. Um, they took out loads of full page adverts about the film, which showed the 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 extremely explicit cover of the video in the advert. Loads of people complained to the advertising standards agency. Uh, and then a few months later, Go Video, who distributed uh, Cannibal Holocaust, wrote anonymously to Mary Whitehouse. Mary Whitehouse was the head of an organization called the National Viewers and Listeners Association. And the distributors thought they could drum up some publicity by complaining about their own film anonymously to this person. <laughs> it didn't go well. <laughs> uh there's there's like soon there's like national press coverage um there's there's this idea of the video nasty as a category of being something that's going to come and corrupt children um the national viewers and listeners association uh lobbied members of parliament uk lawmakers and then by 1984 there is a piece of legislation called the video recordings act and what this did is it created what is now called the British Board of Film Classification. Uh, it made it a anything that did not get uh, an 18 was given an an X rating, um, and anything that had been and things that had been released had to be resubmitted within I think within like two or three years. So if you had an unclassified or an X rated video and you supplied it, it could become a it was like a criminal offence. It was illegal to have this stuff. Um, so this is the kind of atmosphere. And there are, I think, uh, what, 70 films? 70 films that were banned in the UK under this uh, legislation. Phenomenal to know how close this is to our own time. Mm-hmm. And the fact that this is largely still ongoing. This, this is, oh my God, I say this too much on the show, but we're still in that historic moment. You know, like the video shops aren't currently being raided in the greater Manchester area, partly because they no longer exist. But it is worth pointing out that like, you know, sh- shifting nationalities for a second, like here in the States, right? Um, the MPA, formerly the MPAA, uh, are largely in charge of a lot of our ratings here. Um, and 
they're woefully inconsistent about how they apply ratings. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the classic criticism is that violence is is less harshly rated than nudity for some reason. Um, and on, on top of that, right, the, the ratings always reflect oppressive hegemonic structures, right? Uh, a, a movie about a gay couple would be rated much more intensely than the exact same film, but with a straight couple. Mm-hmm. You know, ratings for violence are always played along very racist lines. Yep. And and we're we're still in the kind of like cultural aftershock of of that period of censorship, right? This kind of like Reaganite Thatcherite view on popular middle class moralism. Yeah, absolutely. And um, there are even some films which never got a UK release because. Um, they were just never submitted to the BBFC, so they they never they never were distributed. Like, and this this is uh, actually. Do you want to talk about that now? Should we talk about that? Yeah, that yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's. let's I, good point. Uh, this brings up. A, there's there's a pause. You can edit around. This this brings up a really important point though, which is the role and function of film critics and uh, rather not film critics, but film censors and ways in which those two things are maybe not as far apart as we might like to think. Yeah. So I think there's, there's a lot of popular discourse that kind of, you know, film, film censors naturally have two sworn enemies and that's directors and film critics. Um, you know, because critics are always levying, rightfully so, very heavy criticisms towards censorship conceptually. But I think the, the, the framework of the activity here, I think, is surprisingly similar. And for individuals like ourselves that, for better or for worse, we are film critics. Um, fingers crossed on the for better. <laughs> mm-hmm. But what we're doing is not fundamentally different. We're just, I I would say, taking different approaches, right? We're both mediating popular relationships to media. You know, we're we're both acting as an intermediary that's attempting to change how people connect with a piece of art. Uh, The bare bones of the work of the critic and the censor are essentially identical. Um, I would just say that the critic is attempting to pave a, or rather the censor is attempting to pave a two-lane highway to a to a Disneyfied version of whatever that piece of art was, whereas film critics are more some kind of woodland guide. You know, we'll we'll, we'll take you through this thing, but we don't want to change it. <laughs> well, I actually think there's a kind of political angle to this as well, right? I I totally agree, but I also think you can be a you can be a critic for the state, and that makes you a censor. I mean, oh, absolutely, one hundred percent. Like the whole, the whole kind of moral panic of Mary Whitehouse and like that that era of moralism was like it was corrupting your children. It was going to damage the fabric of the nation. It was linked to to things like um, violence and crime, which are again threats to the nation state, right? So, in a way, uh, to be a censor is about. Um, you you take on this kind of special position, which this film is all about kind of undermining and playing with in super interesting ways, which is like, I can see this, but you are not protected against the threat that it poses to you without me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. That's, that's the whole crux of what like, and in a way it, it, like cr- criticism has, a, has a kind of similar function, right? Which is not the, like, this is a threat that I have to mediate for you or, or steer away from you. But it's like, Perhaps you don't get this, or perhaps you wouldn't you wouldn't uh, understand, or you wouldn't engage with this. And so, our responsibility as critics is to kind of like is is to kind of like mediate new culture, right? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. It's it's this this position of being a conduit between these raw fragments of reality that that are art and popular engagement with them. And I, I think uh, one of the other differentiating factors here is that it, it comes down to whether or not your role is that of a kind of policing. Yes. You know, like yeah, yeah. The, 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 film, the film critic that, you know, 
constantly defends the the most obvious you know colonialist racist implications of film has the same function as you were saying of a censor and both of them are policing yeah yeah yeah. and i actually think that's super important because we're going to get i think onto the police function which is running all the way through this movie in some super interesting ways but as we wrap up our vhs formalism zone and move into some 35 millimeter discourse would you i i know i understand you have a maths problem for us <laughs> yes i have a math and or maths problem for everyone out there um and it's 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 a pretty interesting one and it's who has been responsible for more dead more dead people in the real world um on one hand we'll say every single horror movie that's ever been created ever uh the sum totality of that and one individual, Margaret Thatcher. Ooh, that's there's a toughie. <laughs> I, I know everybody at home put on your thinking caps. We're gonna work through this one. And, and in order in order to solve this math problem, right, one would have to first guess, extrapolate, create theories of media influence, and then just kind of ultimately throw a dart at the total harm done by horror. Because it's not zero. All art will at some point hurt someone. Not to excuse the pain that's caused, but to point out that it does happen, right? And and we would be derelict in our duties to ignore that. All you need to do to find out how many people Thatcher died is look to the historic record. The the, the math is just done for us. And I think that this, this film interestingly positions Thatcher with horror. You know, we, we, we get this un, unbroken clip of, of Thatcher on the news giving a speech. And, and I think it's, it's so interesting that our, our censor, right, Enid, is, is watching that on her off time, presumably to either be informed or to relax by, by watching a leader that she agrees with. Uh, and, and here is a person responsible for a magnitude of suffering that would make Cannibal Holocaust look like, I don't, I don't know, any totally benign Jim Henson children's product. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this, like, the whole point, the whole, like, Mary Whitehouse makes a brief appearance in the film, Thatcher makes an appearance in the film, the, and, and this is underscored so explicitly in the ending, is that there mm-hmm. is this, this kind of moralism, this, this vicious censoriousness, uh, there's, there is a fascistic politics underneath it. And this is not the ex, like, and I mean this in a kind of like anti-Oedipus sense of the term, right? The internal fascist, right? This is, uh, Foucault described that book as the guide to anti-fascist living because it was about not 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 necessarily just taking on the fascist in the street, but taking on the fascist that exists inside your own head. Like uh, the, the the key question is why do people desire their own repression? They said uh, mm-hmm. the, that's that's the question they they thought about. That's the question Wilhelm Reich thought about. And it's like the well, the question is here is because it 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 feels great. It there is there is a power to it right the, this is this is exactly what this this idea of like co- corrupting children protecting the nation state keeping things pure you know it, it's those notes on a on a on a on a spiral ring notebook about where you should make cuts are not really that far away right this is why uh Enid is constantly talking about the need to do her job perfectly it has to be perfect right it has to be mm-hmm. it has to be utterly perfect um because there is, there's a sort of like, there's a, there is a, this, there is this kind of like latent strata of fascist politics running through this, not just this, this, this character's story, but the world this character inhabits, right? And you can see the struggles of like someone who is dealing with immense trauma and grief and repressed memory running into the disciplinary and coercive power of this kind of fascistic impulse. Absolutely. Enid is clinging to, to, to the fascism inherent in this kind of censorship work as a life raft amidst her own struggle. And I think the contrast between her and her parents is really important here. Um, Enid's parents seem to be like upper middle class people who, who assumably just have your bog standard center right political bent that comes with that kind of class position. And through the course of this movie, you know, they're not making 
bold, sweeping political statements about their daughter's work. They're just trying to live. You know, they're trying to... Um, so, to, to catch you up with the broad stroke of the movie, Enid's sister died or disappeared when, they, when Enid was a child. Um, Enid's parents, uh, like 20, 30 years down the road, have officially declared her death and are looking to move on. Um, Enid is still forever trapped in that moment and cannot move on. And I think one of the most telling scenes for me, one of the most interesting scenes in this whole movie is, is a phone call Enid has with her mother. And her mom just kind of casually asks, like, oh, Enid, seen any good movies lately? Yeah. You know, you, you work with movies, anything worth watching? Yeah. And, and Enid's, Enid's response is incredibly fascist in its candor. It's, it's I'm not watching these for pleasure. I'm, I'm defending people from these movies. It's, it's, it's got that candor to it. This is the kind of like logic of of the censor, right? It's it's about protecting, it's about keeping yeah. things, uh, which is why you know it might seem slightly strange or counterintuitive to be like, there's a, there's a fascism at work here, but th- that's absolutely the case. It's just not necessarily the fascism that we are culturally expected to think about. This is actually something that gets brought up in a, in a more contemporary form in something like um, Alison Rumford's brilliant new novel, Tell Me I'm Worthless, which mm-hmm. has a very which has its own kind of take on this uh, British conservative strain of f- fascist dominating politics. Yeah, yeah, and I think what's really interesting here is that this this censorship that Enid's taking part in. It's it's very much in service of the construction of a, a kind of conservative British identity, which gets gets kind of like blown up right at the end, <laughs> <laughs> right? And we'll, we we're gonna have to talk about the last twenty minutes of the film because it's really really good. But do you want to talk about time travel? Do 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 do. Yes. Yes, this is the part of the show where we teach everyone how to time travel, and I'm really excited for this. Because uh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know about you, but um, I'm not sure if any of our listeners have realized that this. We're now 200-ish episodes into a podcast ran by two time travelers. <laughs> so, wh- so what do you mean? What? Why are we talking? <laughs> why are we talking about time? So, so this film sensor plays with time in such a wonderful way, right? Enid's, Enid's job involves the manipulation of time on, on several levels, right? Enid is always stopping and reversing movies and, and going back to sections uh, so she can review them for censorship, right? It's, it's her, and, and that makes her job to be on a very uh, basic level, to be messing with the materiality of a film, right? Messing, or messing rather with its temporality, Yes. You know, because when you, when you censor a movie, it's not just about removing a, uh, you know, objectionable scene. It, it fundamentally disrupts the flow of a film. You know, it, it's almost like this, this kind of impossible. It's, a, it's an act of re-editing being done by someone with no interest in a cohesive artistic body. And that is contrasted with Enid's personal life. Right. Enid is, is an adult, but in many ways, her life has been paused for like 20 years. Yeah, she precisely. is for, forever trapped in the past. In that moment when her sister disappeared, she cannot move on or escape from that. Um, we gather from her parents that Enid has had plenty of outlandish theories about what's happened to her sister, and and she's she's caused them a lot of pain and embarrassment along the way in her attempts to find her missing sister. Um, and at the end of the film, you know when when Enid's you know frantic desire to pin the past forever boils over. Her, uh, she pulls out a remote, mm-hmm. just just a, a a video remote that she's always had with her, and she assumes direct control over this kind of temporal construction of her life. And in the movie, it's it's a fantastic thing. But this is also something we do in our lives. You know, when when you reframe past events that have happened to you, right? Let's you know, finding a positive way to embrace a former trauma and and move through it and using that method. Right. For one example, that is a way of time traveling. That is a way of fundamentally renegotiating how the past happened to you and having that change the materiality of your present and your future. Well, like this is part of the reason why. uh, Why often people who have dealt with serious trauma and 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 fear and 
uh, anxieties are drawn to horror. This is exactly what horror can do, right? Horror is horror is not it, it, horror is is in this sense then is a, a form of film about literally traveling through time. Oh no, one hundred percent. This is a time travel movie. Yeah, like, 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 make make no mistakes about it. This is a movie about passing through time in a nonlinear fashion, and I, I think one of the things that makes us really important is this is challenging our kind of Fordian perception of time, mm-hmm. right? Like all contemporary time exists in a Fordian framework. It's a factory model approach to time. You know, we're always clocking in and out of things. We're always being timed. It's this. Uh, hyper over perfected kind of capitalistic approach to the fluidity of our existence. And one of the things I really like in Sensor is that it really challenges that. It challenges this kind of forced linearity. Well, should we talk a little bit about the ending then? Should we talk about that final about the this these these moments of trying of essentially trying to restart one's life in in the wake of kind of trauma as it were or yeah or or, or actually maybe like the biggest thing is about restarting one's life in the wake of loss in this film um so set up the ending set it set up the ending right (laughs) so Uh, what happens uh, in in the course of censoring these video nasties enid stumbles upon an actress named alice lee uh who enid is is convinced is her sister, her long missing presumed dead sister. Um, Enid's parents don't see the connection. This is something that is uh, exclusive to Enid. There's no meaningful evidence to this outside of things Enid is incidentally piecing together. Um, Enid then begins a quest to get closer to Alice Lee. Right, going through producers, eventually winding up on set, and through through happenstance, being taken as an extra in a movie. Um, and then she proceeds to axe murder a film crew and kidnap Alice Lee, the actress she thinks is her sister. And I think this is this is this is where like the ending kind of takes off, and I I, I love I love the ending. It's so mm-hmm. it's, it's so solidly done because yep. The it's not just any film. It's a film by a specific director, Frederick North, that Ina gets obsessed with, um, because the actor Alice Lee appears in these films, and so they find out where North is shooting the next movie and drive down there. And there's this conversation between North and them about kind of about the the, the kind of ontology of horror. Um where North says there's something in you, there is something within you mm-hmm. that's that's horrifying and you you need to let it out, improvise, let go. Which is the the complete opposite to this the censorious kind of like fascist politics of like, no, horror comes from outside and it has to be kind of cut out or kind of cut away from the from the body. And that conversation I think is so interesting. North is framed and shot like in super tight close-ups, so you never kind of see the whole face. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? How how this kind of the ending sets up this question of like, where does horror? What's the what's the ontological condition of horror? Should we all pick up the axe? <laughs> the answer the answer is of course metaphorically yes. Um, but what what I found to be really meaningful about that ending is that. All of these horror people that we see are, I'll say, relatively normal. You know, M- Michael uh, Michael Smiley is in, is in this movie as uh, a, a horror kind of a video nasty producer named Doug Smart. Um, Michael Smiley kills it. Yeah, he's, he's so, so good. He's so good at playing these kind of like greasy bad guys. Um, but you know and and he's he's you know very sexual assaulty very not a good guy but all the other horror people we see in this are just people you know they're you know they've got faults and foibles and flaws but but you know they're relatively stable and well maintained enid is the one who's kind of boiling over perpetually right she's the one whose emotions are are chaotic and wild she's the one with this kind of like 
meltdown logic that's just that's just pulling her in, into vi- violence and chaos. And the conversation that we get with Frederick North at the end is is really a, a play on that, right? What's the, what's one of the classic comments for why horror has always existed as a human form of expression? It's venting. It's venting anxiety and fear and worry and stress and pain. It's just a way to release those things that's positive, that creates something that's that's not going to continue cycles of violence and harm. Uh, and Enid, despite the fact that she has made her life's mission protecting people from this, it has become the very thing that she wanted to prevent. Well, I mean, in a sense, I'm 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 maybe less um, I'm I'm maybe less harsh on Enid than you are, um, because I think that kind of like that that sort of substrata of Fascism is something that I think is structural in this film, right? So, like, oh yeah, Enid. Enid even says there's a conversation between her and one of the other senses. It's it's catharsis relief. That's what it is. That's why people mm-hmm. make it. You know, we don't need to we don't need to moralize. We just need to follow the rules, which again is precisely mm-hmm. what, what I'm talking about. But then, actually, when confronted with what you know, what we kind of term the the lib- libidinal economics of horror. Right, the fact that it those though that catharsis can be so intensive and so transgressive that it shatters rules. That's where your the conflict comes in. And honestly, I think this is why horror is, you know, personally, I think is a very kind of freeing space and is actually a good way in which we we do work through things that we find terrifying, the genuine fears that people might hold are explored in the kind of like cultural space in a way that I think is probably a net positive. But I also think horror generally has a pretty clear-eyed understanding of human nature, that, that this idea that horror doesn't come from without. Horror comes from the, the kind of fractures within, within all of us. Oh, oh, 100%. Yeah, we, we are these things. You know, we've talked about this in so many episodes before, but like you know, in, in, in so many movies and in so many contexts, it's, it's the human element that winds up being the, the kind of locus of monstrosity and pain and terror. And, and I think that that's structural in this movie as well, right? Like to borrow your phrasing, you know, because I'm not without sympathy for Enid because what she went through was, was real and traumatic. And you do get a sense through the course of the movie that there's this massive societal failing that like a house of cards, you know, there there's just systemic lack of support, which is causing contradiction and frailty everywhere. It's not Enid that's in free fall or collapse. It's the world around her. Yeah, precisely. Precisely. Ahara has a super interesting idea about human nature, which is like there tends to be very reductionist ideas of human nature in certain other kinds of filmmaking, right? Where people are like inherently kind of bad and self-interested and always out for themselves, or they're always you know, you can, the magic is in you. You you can be the hero. You can be the kind of controller of your own destiny. <laughs> Whereas I think horror generally has a much more interesting view on human, on like what are humans like, like, and it steers away from those reductionist kind of categories and says, actually, oh, yeah. humans are um, uh, full of potentials. Like there are, there are, there are, there are ways in which humans act, which are very positive and redeeming and kind of good. And there are also like colossal potentials within what, what might appear to be very ordinary people for like violence and pain and, and kind of monstrosity. They even talk about this in the context of the amnesiac killer, right? Mm -hmm. Why did he do it? That's always the question, right? And it's like, well, he's just an ordinary person. And that's 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 a genuinely terrifying thing, but it also kind of raises the 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 idea that like a horror kind of gets human nature, I think, in really interesting ways. Well, I completely agree. I, I think it's almost the genre par excellence for like really exposing the kind of organic cultural machinery that is the human, that that is what we're capable of, both in terms of. You know, because the most dire heroics are played out in horror movies. You know, no- normal people with no great skill or physical prowess have are get, you know thrust into positions of immense you know heroism. But also, 
uh, the most villainy, right? It's it's this kind of free space of expression because it has the liberties provided by the gothic and fear. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it shows the fact that nature, that, like this idea of a kind of fixed human nature is kind of like, doesn't really hold up, that there's this kind of malleable potentiality. Um, oh, yeah, totally. Even Even with the monsters, too. You know, just look at just look at like, you know, any any given like popular slasher killer, you know, through the through the long arc of movies with Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger, they have been villains, heroes, antiheroes, you know, they're they're constantly fluidly rattling back and forth, you know, like even even the monsters don't have this kind of moral fixity that we'd see elsewhere. Yeah, precisely. Uh, even in the context of uh, what's he called beast man in this film <laughs> yeah. um there's another really interesting moment right at the end where, where which is what in what is essentially an abduction scene i wanted to know what you think about the repeated line please be her ooh i think this one i think this one is incredibly interesting right it ties into these thematic notes of censorship right like Enid's Enid's based her life on blocking things out of of deleting things of hiding realities and truths and moments and now when she desperately needs something to be there that's a power she lacks you know she she has become a master of taking things away and to hear need to place something I, I think is very interesting and I think it also speaks to this kind of the the internal mechanics of Enid, you know, as as someone who, as we were discussing earlier, is is kind of unstuck from time, you know, did despite you know her physicality and the world around her moving forward, she cannot emotionally leave this one moment, and she's still trying to cling to that. Right, she needs Alice Lee to be her sister. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? I. I couldn't agree more. And I also think it kind of chimes with this idea of horror being a space in which in which you can, if you want to be, be somebody different. Right? This is this again, this is part of the this is part of why people love horror movies. It's because like you can be scared, but you can you can be a monster. You can there's there's something in the horror that allows for identity to be fluid, to be you that you can become a kind of other person, but there is something so there's something so deeply tragic about this uh, this character that depends upon the inscription of order, finding out that their kind of ordering discourse has failed. Because, oh yeah, because it was just as much a kind of phantasmatic projection as the horror films itself, right? This this idea that you can kind of like make sense of the world by imposing cuts so that you can show the disemboweling but not the eye gouging uh it's like it's it's just as it's just as illusory this kind of idea of control absolutely and i think i think projection is really important here right like this is both a psychoanalytic apparatus of 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 human consciousness like like a, a hermeneutic or an ontology a way of seeing and knowing um, and it's also the literal technology of the thing we're working with. You must project the movie. Yes. <laughs> it's it's so it's so subtle and clever and like, oh, God, this movie. And especially like this movie was like a tight 90. <laughs> yeah, right. And I'm just like, oh, this whole while well, this this whole movie, I was like, like when the, when the intro. Sorry, this is like a, a side note, but I have to get this out when the intro music starts. And it's just clips of audio about and from horror movies, video nasties, that that kind of thing, overlaid with this kind of like '80s synth score. Mm-hmm. That's just literally most of the music I listen to anyway. <laughs> so like this is this is one of those movies where I was just like, oh, the whole time through, I was just chef's chef's kiss meme, no comment, no I, notes. <laughs> yeah, I I I'm totally with you. I just think it's it's. Like you say, it's a tight ninety. There's, there's like it's been, it's been so well put together. Not an inch of wasted uh, film, huh? uh, <laughs> and that brings us, that brings us to the ending, to when, when like the fantasy kind of collapses. Yeah. So what do you want? What do you want to? How do you want to start this? How do you want to start a discussion of 
So in, in the end of the film, Enid kidnaps Alice Lee and takes her back to her family home to reunite her uh, this this actress she thinks is her sister with her parents and restore this kind of family family moment she's been paused in for decades now. Um, but but as it turns out, this is this is another bit of censorship. Yeah, there's there. What I think is really really great is the way that it just. What I love, I love. There's this kind of been this sort of trend in horror movies of like. You have a metaphor, but the metaphor is also literally true, right? <laughs> right? Where you go, oh well, this 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 idea of censorship is this kind of metaphoric construct, but it's also true, right? It's also this is the fantasy is also the reality, as it were. And what I really love about it is the way that this ending makes the ideological stakes of the rest of the film just crystal clear. I read some reviews that said the ending was kind of confusing, or and it didn't say much, and I was like. Hang on, <laughs> she the, she projects this fantasy <laughs> of of reuniting the family, and it's like that solves everything because then on the radio you hear all the criminals are in jail now, and and the world is perfect, and then you see the kind of like static real kind of flickering beneath the surface, and it's like it, it's a film that really lends itself to like reading the ending in psychoanalytic terms, but like oh, in yeah. a in a politicized psychoanalysis, right? The ending is so clear about the ideological stakes of censorship and what the what the censor's perfected role was for, right? The reinscription of the family unit, the covering up of the violence and kind of horror, um, the 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 forcible mass rollout of a carceral state, you know, and it's filmed in these kind of like very soft palette of like glowing sun and it's all it's literally it's a rainbow <laughs> it's like it i i love the ending because the ending just makes everything it the ending is not subtle but we do not live in subtle times <laughs> and i i really loved the frantic pace of the ending you, you you know like like it's it's everything we've been talking about right it's it's enid's enid's attempt to control and edit and censor and forcibly rearrange the kind of organic flow of her life so of course it's going to be patchy and quick and jarring, you know. There, there's also a, a, a heavy amount of oppression that's needed, right? It, it, there, there must be this oppression and suppression, right? So we, yeah. we get we get that. Oh, everyone's in jail now. You're fine. Every, all the baddies are gone, and then yeah, you you have to have oppression and suppression to go along mm-hmm. with the re, to go along with the repression. Yes. Yes. And all, all of this is like, like all of these are different facets of containment, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and of course, like th- this thing is not sustainable. This thing cannot be fully contained forever. So it's constantly fracturing and you get these like static breakthroughs, right, of what's what's really going on. And that's in its kidnapped Alice Lee and is now taking her hostage to meet her parents who are naturally kind of freaking out about this. <laughs> Yeah, the cuts the cuts are never clean, right? The the sense the censoring is never perfect because the censors don't care about the idea of kind of artistic unity. The ending is necessarily quick and perfunctory because you just got to get to the ending, you got to get the film out to maintain that kind of ideological screen. And like the it's I think it's also important that the ending is is like visually and audibly inconsistent. Right. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's this rough intermeshing of footages and concepts and ideas. And, and this is really important, right? Because, you know, I, I talked about this earlier with the MPA being woefully inconsistent with their standards. But the same thing was true for the video nasties. There were quote unquote rules that they had to follow, but did they follow them? No. You know, what gets censored is arbitrarily a reflection of ideological projects. Yeah, there, there, there's there's very rarely to almost never an an objective consideration of showing people certain things. It's it's part of a larger social structure that's happening, and that's always deeply, deeply, screamingly inconsistent. So the 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 broken and jarring nature of the end of this film, the fact it feels like it's it's fraying and falling apart as we watch it, is just oh, again, Chef's Kiss meme goes here. <laughs> I think this is the main thing, right? The biggest takeaway is that it's just it's it's it is exactly what it needs to be on every level and I think it it shows like there like there are some nice kind of jokes about like uh and references to the horror movies at the time. I as I said, I think the production design is just incredible. 
I think the sound design's amazing, but I think this the conceptually and on the level of like cinema as a mechanism for the delivery of concepts, right? The idea the idea of art, right? This has got such such an interesting understanding of like what is film and how does it intersect with all of these questions of the state and politics and self-identity and things like projection and repression. Um, I'm really glad we watched it. I'm really glad we watched it. And I hope, I hope people are, are, are inspired to go hunt it down. Oh, absolutely. If you haven't seen this already, like I would, I would consider this a must watch. Like all of the praise that this movie is getting is it's not getting enough, <laughs> you know, like, like, there, 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 there is no amount of appreciation that would equal the kind of like, you know, like yeah. this is just, yeah, yeah. oh, yeah. it's extremely just, refreshing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in a, in a world where like, you know, it's just so, it's just so nice. It's just, it's, it's a film, it's, you know, this film about abduction, murder, psychological repression and, <laughs> and, and, gr- and grief has, has really been a heart warmer for both of us, I think. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's terrible, but I think it's slightly accurate. <laughs> okay, cut cut here. Cut. cut. Abrupt cut. cut. Abrupt cut. Uh insert static, insert uh uh screaming sounds as <laughs> as the tape deck starts to loop and we all just fade away. And then and then someone says, "Stay spooky" with a very audible question mark, teasing the sequel. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.